this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast i'm anand krishnan your host for today India's relations with China stand at a crossroads after the 2020 border crisis and in the view of many people who follow the India China relationship the model that has governed ties since normalization in 1988 no longer works it has become almost impossible to ignore or shelve differences and the boundary question has once again become front and center also influencing other aspects of the relationship such as trade and investment The harder question to answer is where do we go from here? A new paper titled Strategic Patience and Flexible Choices: How India Can Rise to the China Challenge, published in March 2021, attempts to answer just that. In this episode, we are lucky to be joined by two of its six authors who explain what they view as the optimal way forward for India's relations with China politically militarily and economically gautam bambawale is a retired diplomat who served as india's ambassador to china also to bhutan and pakistan ajay shah is a research professor of business at the jindal global university and both of them are associated with the pune international center which published their very timely paper Thank you both so much for joining the Hindu today. Great pleasure to be with you, uh, Anand. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. I think the obvious question uh, to ask, uh, if I can begin with you, uh, Gautam, is why this paper? What prompted you to write it? If you could just walk us through how this exercise began. That's an excellent question to start with, Anand. And thank you very much for posing that question. As you rightly said, right at the start. uh that the mil- chinese military aggression in ladakh which commenced in early may of 2020 and which continues even till today even though there has been a bit of disengagement of forces in one subsector of ladakh mm-hmm. uh other subsectors do have not seen this but all uh, of that set people across the country across india uh thinking and so did it here in pune where all of us are members of the pune international center mm-hmm. uh, a non partisan independent think tank and a lot of us then uh, put our heads together to try to um, understand the chinese uh, uh, motives and the chinese military aggression against india mm-hmm. and then to answer the larger question of how does india meet this challenge you yourself have your own book uh, anant which is called india's china challenge right. <laughs> we we do feel that there is a china challenge for india and therefore uh, all the answers that we came to uh, through our uh, interactions are in this paper uh this is of course a shorter version of a much longer 100 uh, odd page paper which we hope to turn into a book at some point of time mm. but uh, this paper which is titled strategic patience and flexible policies how india can rise to the china challenge is our uh, contains our suggestions of what india should be doing uh, to rise to the china challenge 
You know, one line that really uh, jumped at me at the start of the paper is uh, you write along with the authors that China has decided uh, the nature of the relationship and that she appears to, decide, to desire a conflictual, unbalanced, tense relationship. You know, that's really a worrying thought. Uh, before I come to Professor Shah, I just wanted to pose uh, this question to you, uh, Gautam. Has the disengagement and the statements from China since then uh, caused you to revise that assessment? Uh, and secondly, are you surprised at the actions that the Chinese took on the line of actual control, uh, which you explain has gone against many of these very carefully constructed agreements after this huge initiative by both sides, uh, both at the Wuhan summit and the Chennai summit. Uh, of course, we should point to listeners that you were very closely involved with a lot of that in the attempt to repair the relationship after Doklam. So I was just curious for your thoughts. Uh, were you struck by the actions they took in light of all that you were involved with? Uh, and also, secondly, are you, is there any reason to revise their assessment with their statements on disengagement? Anand, you're absolutely right. The basic premise, the basic uh, starting point for our paper is what I can term as Chinese hostility towards India. And I think that has become very, very, very apparent now with what the Chinese have attempted to do, their military aggression in Ladakh, their attempted military coercion uh, on our borders in Ladakh. Uh, clearly points to the fact that China wants a, uh, doesn't want a balanced uh, sort of uh, relationship with India, mm. that it is quite happy with an unbalanced, conflictual kind of relationship. And uh, Chinese hostility is the basic premise for our paper. And once you start with that premise, you come to ask yourself uh, lots of questions across the board. And uh, the answers that we have given um, uh, Anant are uh, in the paper, we can discuss them as we go along. Mm. But you're absolutely right. I have come to believe that the Chinese, instead of opting for a discussion, negotiation, continuing to talk on difficult issues across the board between our two countries, have now decided that they will uh, move to a military kind of strategy against mm. India. And that itself uh, is the starting point for our paper. Uh, Professor Shah, one thing I really appreciated about the paper is the fact that uh, I found it quite sober, uh, quite data-driven. Uh, and I think that even, especially when you look at the economic relationship, uh, you, you write that the main pathway reported is a in the consensus view is a middle road that's most desirable. Uh, and that completely disconnecting the economic relationship with China on the one hand or on the other, uh, having complete business as usual, both those roads are closed to us. Can you just walk us through uh, uh, why you made that argument? So there is one position, and this is something that has come to us from Gautam, that uh, the Chinese have tried this strategy, that we preserve the economic status quo ante, and we wage war on the border. Okay. And it is extremely important for India to say, sorry, that is not on the table. Okay. So that's one perspective that just the good old days of uh, pursuing a deeper economic and business and commercial engagement is not feasible as long as the border is under attack. But at the same time, there is a certain hawkish perspective in India where the thought is now let's go shut down every aspect of engagement with China. And we need to 
pause in that instinct because some of this stuff can be pretty self defeating for ourselves so i feel we need to put india first our primacy should be on the idea how do we become strong and we should judge every action by what it does for india's prosperity and india's strength and not by whether we are spiting the other person or not and we should remember that the other person is actually an economy that is 5x larger than us so many times what we might think of as a hostile move that we think may damage china in practice it may be a mere pin prick to them so we think that there is a role for careful thinking and finding that middle road that how do we play optimally for india how do we build india's strength that should be our primordial objective how do we create conditions in international relations and diplomacy on a global scale where india is able to attract more partners and achieve a coalition that is conducive towards india's objectives there is a great example uh, where you make the case that Uh, if we should be selective to some chinese investments for example in running a port or running an airport uh, should we uh, say they should not invest in uh, building a road between nagpur and nashik i mean there should be some uh, selective thought involved uh, i want to spend some time on the long term uh, because one of the things that i found most interesting in the paper is there's a there's a bunch of things we can do in the short term but there's also uh, hanging above all of this is what's going to make or break uh, the future of this relationship is whether we get many things right in terms of our long term strategies uh, and i thought that was really interesting uh, i just wanted to flag one statistic that i found quite sobering in 2047 when india will uh, be at 100 years of independence uh, the paper forecasts that if at 5% gdp growth china will be a gdp of 86 trillion dollars in ppp terms uh, for the next uh, 26 years if india is able to grow at 6% we will be at 39 trillion dollars if we grow at 8% we'll be at 64 trillion dollars just to give you a sense of the of the gulf and i think the paper is 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 quite aware uh, of of the of the reality that we confront uh, if i can come to you gautam on the, you make the case that uh, diplomatically uh, india has no choice but to align with countries in the short term just because of this gulf in power Uh, and uh, i found that to be a persuasive argument because often this question of whether we should align with america or others or not is is become an ideological one uh, in terms of where someone stands uh, vis-a-vis how they look at the us how they look at russia how they look at china uh, but can you walk us through the case that you make for why we should align at least for now uh, w- with partners on, on specific issues absolutely um in the short run anant as we argue in our paper india has a bad hand of cards because of this great asymmetry which you have uh, correctly spelled out and which our paper spells out uh, so in the short run uh, the only thing india can do is to build balancing coalitions with groups of countries and we suggest there are three groups of countries with which india can build such balancing coalitions one is of course the major democracies of the world second is those countries which are neighboring to china so a country like russia for example is a very good uh, 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 is a very good uh, uh, country to have such a coalition with 
despite the problems that may exist. And lastly, of course, countries in India's neighborhood like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Uh, so there is a group of about 20 odd countries with which India can build very strong, deep partnerships. And by deep partnerships, we mean partnerships which go, go beyond just government to government interaction. And with Russia, for example, we need to do that. We need to have people to people uh, ties. We need to have institutional uh, arrangements. We need to have institutional ties uh, across a range of subject matters with these countries. And in the short run, that is one of the ways that India can maintain not only its territorial integrity and national sovereignty, but also uh, maintain its strategic autonomy. So uh, we, we, we argue that India needs to go beyond narrow versions, narrow definitions of strategic autonomy in the short term. And would you say, Ambassador Mabali, that the Quad, for instance, is something that right now checks many of those boxes? Absolutely, you're 100% correct. And the speed at which the Quad has grown and has um, uh, continued to uh, sort of flower uh, shows that. But also, uh, as you know, Anant, very soon we are going to have a trilateral foreign ministers meeting between India, Australia and France. Mm. So here's another country that we mentioned in our list of 20. And this is yet another example of a balancing coalition, which is forming uh, sooner rather than later. You know, I wanted to come next to our, our long-term economic strategies. Uh, obviously, I would like to spend more time on this, but uh, since we have a limited podcast, and I would encourage all our listeners to check out the paper, which we are linking to below the podcast. Now, coming to long-term economic uh, strategies, uh, the paper flags uh, three critical challenges for India, and I'd like Professor Shah to comment on this. Uh, one is uh, you look at the increasing tendency towards the government micromanaging the economy. Uh, the second is an expanding administrative state. And third is a growing erosion of the rule of law. Uh, so obviously... A big emphasis of this paper is, uh, to put it very, very simply, unless we get our house in order at home, forget about long-term challenges of, of dealing with China. Uh, so, uh, Professor Shah, can you explain to me these three challenges and uh, how optimistic or not are you of us addressing them, uh, looking at the next five to ten years? For the problem statement, we should focus on private investment, the heart and soul of economic growth is private investment. Most GDP is made in private organizations. Almost all jobs are made in private organizations. So the central story is about achieving an environment of buoyancy and dynamic private investment. We had one great peak of private investment in 1995, which mm. was a response to the 1991 reforms. And then that ebbed away through the 90s. Then we got to a next great peak in 2007. Okay. And then that ebbed away. And uh, we are now standing in uh, 2021. It has been 14 years since 2007. And uh, it is a matter of concern that we do not have a phenomenon of buoyant private investment around us in India mm -hmm. today. And that has many, many, many manifestations, but it is the heart of our economic malaise. So we need to go deeper and understand what went wrong. Why is there a sustained sluggishness on the part of private investment? And the story that we tell in the paper is of three problems. The first is excessive government micromanagement of the economy. Sometimes we are told a fable that in 1991, India stepped out of the socialism and became a market economy. 
but that's really not true. There is a very, very extensive, intrusive government apparatus operating all over the country, telling firms how to do things. So government involvement in the decisions about what technology to use, how to organize processes, which company wins, which industry is better able to compete with which industry. Unfortunately, all these things are being controlled by the government. For entrepreneurs, for businessmen, they're constantly looking at the government because what wins and what doesn't win does not come out of the energy and the technological innovation and understanding customers. Mm. It comes out of understanding government. And that's really you know, not the way an efficient, capable economy works. The second problem is the administrative state. Right. Deep in the concept of liberal democracy, there are three branches of government. There is a legislative branch, there is an executive branch, and there is a judicial branch. The term administrative state is used to denote the excessive domination of the executive branch. We have come in India to a place where, for all practical purposes, it is the officials who write the laws. In many cases, officials adjudicate disputes. And oftentimes, the judiciary is not willing to take on the government and strike down uh, the actions of the government, either on the legislative side or on the executive side. And this gives us an administrative state, uh, a state in which the officials are of paramount importance. Mm. And this is, again, an unhealthy environment because extreme concentration of power with officials creates fear in the hands of the private sector. For private persons, they would much rather see a much more healthy political balance and negotiations leading up to law and the powers of officials that are circumscribed in laws and a robust mechanism to appeal the actions and the behavior and the decisions of officials in courts. And when we lose this separation of powers, an old 17th century concept, then we get much more concentration of power and that creates dangers for private persons going all the way to a certain element of expropriation risk. And that deters the confidence of private people. And that brings me to the third point, which is the erosion of rule of law. Rule of law is the idea that people are treated equally. All too often in India today, private persons are under the fear that uh, they will face raids and investigations and uh, behavior of tax officials, which is not equal between different persons. And again, it becomes important to manage that uh, political administrative environment rather than managing the market and managing the technology. So just think of the biases that if a private person feels vulnerable that uh, I could be expropriated because some officials will decide to come after me, hmm. then that creates an emphasis in how you prioritize your time and activities. And also it creates a loss of confidence. Then you say, maybe I should not be committing all my resources and my children and my energy into building an organization in India. So this is our story about what went wrong and why there was a peak of investment in 2007 and why we're standing here 14 years later with sluggish private investment. Uh, the final thing I wanted to pose to both of you um, is that you do make the point that India has to be more open to international trade for many reasons, um, starting with the fact that obviously China is our biggest trading partner. Uh, we need to find alternatives and reduce dependence on some goods that we still import from China in large quantities. 
um, that do have a strategic emphasis as well, that we need to find alternatives. There is also the broader debate going on in the world right now about dependence on Chinese supply chains that many countries are confronting after the COVID-19 pandemic. But also it has been a bit of a reality check where people are still talking of China plus one, uh, diversifying rather than replacing the dependence on China. But how do we square all of this with what um, many people view as uh, India turning away from free trade agreements? So I can come to you first, Ambassador Bambawale. Uh, you've written about India's decision to uh, withdraw from the uh, RCEP negotiations. And, and more than that, we've had senior Indian officials frequently speak about FTAs uh, not in a very enthusiastic way. Uh, so how do we uh, kind of square this trend that we are seeing uh, from Indian policymakers with with the broader challenge that we face? Uh, and some would say a reality of the fact that we need to be more globally integrated. Yeah, no, that's an excellent question, Anant. And let me just make two points after mm -hmm. which I'd uh, hand over to Ajay Shah because he's the economist and uh, he will explain this in greater detail. But the first point I'd like to make is that Basic economic theory tells us that uh, trade contributes to greater GDP. And that is where we start from. That is what we um, are arguing. Of course, the fact of the matter is that it is only when you have a strong domestic economy, which is manufacturing and uh, creating goods and services according to your uh, competitive advantage, uh, that you will be able to take advantage of such um, uh, international trade and free international trade. So I think that's the basic point we make in the book. Uh, and uh, in fact, we would say that in the long run, it would not be correct to turn inwards to, uh, in any case, I don't think, uh, you know, the current policies are aiming at autarky, but that kind of thing would be absolutely wrong. We need to stay competitive internationally. We need to make our own domestic industry competitive internationally. And as we have said that uh, in, in our paper, that not only should we depend on Atma Nirbharta, but we should also have Atma Vishwas to engage with the rest of the world. I'm going to stop there and hand over to Ajay. Yeah, so continuing on where we were, uh, the paper strongly argues that a deep engagement with globalization is good for India's strength. And this is something that is amply well understood through the experience of the last 100 years. But let's go closer to the problem of international relations. Uh, one of the most interesting insights that all of us should bring to this problem is that this is pretty much the first time in India's history that we are facing a geostrategic conflict with a much stronger nation. Okay, so look back uh, when India has had problems with Pakistan, Pakistan has always been a much smaller country. Back in 1962, when India fought a war with China, at that time, Chinese GDP was of the order of Indian GDP. Mm. So we're in a new terrain now. We've never been in this situation before. And we need to, for example, think of how small European powers in the 20th century dealt with problems of interacting with hostility from Germany or Russia or France or England, which were the big four of the time. There are many analogies there. So to go closer to trade, I feel the really deep question we should all be asking is, to what extent is decisions about India and international relations shaped by domestic compulsions? And to what extent are decisions about international relations shaped by international relations compulsions? 
I would submit that all too often in the past, our thinking on international relations has been excessively shaped by domestic compulsions. So, you know, you've got some industry in India that becomes unhappy. So we put an export, uh, an import tariff on a certain good. We're not thinking about what is happening outside. We have strategic autonomy or we have a non-aligned movement. And, you know, we've really not cared about what people outside think. We respond to one domestic lobby after another. Uh, a major argument of this paper is that what we now need in India is a golden age of diplomacy. What we need is a renaissance of international relations thinking where we need a cadre of people who think deeply about India's relationship with 20 countries who are key partners to us. Mm. And uh, we look for ways in which we can reshape domestic policy in ways that grows deep ties all the way to affection between those 20 countries and India. That is how we do coalition building. And so it's going to require a new approach to all these questions. There will have to be a give and take. If something, if subject X is important to Japan, then it has to become important to India. That is the meaning of having deep ties with Japan and so on. Well, thank you both so much. A lot of food for thought. I think we've just scratched the surface, but our listeners can check out uh, the full paper, uh, which is linked below the podcast. I'm sure uh, the China relationship is so important. We'll keep coming back to it in the future. And I'm sure we'll have both of you back on the podcast. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.